All right, the Dossier Podcast is back. This is Jordan Schachtel, your host, the publisher of the Dossier. You can find us on dossier.today or dossier.substack.com. Today we have a really cool guest um, that aligns really well with what we've been reporting and and writing about um, at the Dossier. And he's Josh Abatoy. He's um, he's a partner at New Founding, which is a really cool organization that um, is kind of enacting its own, you know, cultural rebellion against the uh, the Biden administration and just like the general woke left and Wall Street corporate policies that we're being inundated with today in the United States. Um, Josh also has a really cool project called Ridge Runner, which is also, I think, affiliated with New Founding, um, which is you know, this, um, there, there's kind of like these local pockets of pioneering um, venture capitalists and people who want to kind of build their own citadels in a sense to get away from the the craziness of you know American bureaucratic corporate society you know get away get getting away from the pod life although I participate a little bit in the pod life in South Florida it's um <laughs> you know it, it's refreshing to see that there's there's people and there's you know venture firms that are willing to um, you know, provide other options, not just in, you know, employment, but in, you know, family and community. Um, Josh, it's really good having you on the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about New Founding? Because you guys kind of came onto the scene only a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, we were founded back in 2021. Uh, I joined in 21 uh, from a private equity background. Um, Nate Fisher is the founder over here, um, and we we've always been a a venture and media company. So um, you know we uh, we built some media brands and sold them to the Blaze uh, back in uh, back in twenty three in the summer, and we've been doing a lot of deals on our own. Um, and then uh, actually in in uh, late August we launched a venture fund, so we're now investing in a lot of companies and startups, and. Uh, you know, we've got our fingers in a lot of a lot of pies. We're investors, and we're trying to tap into some pretty seismic changes that are happening in American society. That you know, we we all personally believe are good for the country, and we also think that that a lot of people are going to be able to make a, a living in this space as well. Um, so, you know, one of the big one of the big needs on the venture side is that um, you know the ideological capture of the Fortune 500 and and all of that has created opportunities everywhere for entrepreneurs and innovators. And you know, we can start with a really simple example. Um, everybody knows if you if you um, run a company or maybe you run an organization that's that's a little bit uh, conservative, too far right of center, uh, you're at severe cancellation risk from this whole stack of companies that you really need to be able to use in order to like run a business. Um, you know, Mailchimp and and Salesforce and there are companies that um, will turn organizations off uh, if those organizations cross certain lines. And, you know, at, at the same time, everybody knows about ESG and the way that capital gets allocated now. It's oftentimes irrational. There's good companies that uh, have trouble getting capital because they're in a disfavored sector. Um, so so you, can, you can look around and find opportunity everywhere. It's all really relates to the fact that a lot of the people with money in this country have huge blind spots and they miss 
um, ideological blind spots because they're in they're in cocooned communities and so they miss opportunities. And you know, so so we think we hope that with what we're doing, we have an opportunity to invest and make money, create companies that serve people that people want. Um, and so that's that's really what we're doing at a, at a you know ten thousand foot level. Real estate's an example of that. Um, so what's the blind spot? Um, a ton of people in this country want to relocate to rural areas, and that is a very politicized movement. Um, the uh, according to statistics I've seen, about five or six million people have moved since COVID, and twenty million still want to. Of that 20 million, a majority want to move to a rural area. Um, people who want to move to a rural area are overwhelmingly conservative. The politics of wanting to live in a city versus a rural area are almost diametrically flipped. Um, and that's increased over time. It didn't used to be the case. But as of today, there's never been a bigger measured gap between who wants to move to the country versus who wants to move to the city. And why do they do that? Shows up in polling data. Like this is all. This isn't you know right wing speculation. This is just this is secular knowledge. They want to. They're increasingly citing political and cultural factors in that decision making process, and it kind of makes sense. I mean, if you're a if you're a right of center white collar worker at a bank or something, some big institution in a city, and it's gotten ideologically captured, all of a sudden you're less loyal to the institution. And then you start thinking, man, I've been making all these hard life sacrifices for this institution. And what have I gotten for it? It's not meritocratic. Am I going, can I rise through the ranks there? Do I even think it's like good for the world, what they're doing? You know, increasingly people are saying no. And then when they say that, then they start thinking about, well, I want more sovereignty over my own economic affairs. I'll join a smaller shop where I have more influence. I'll go out on my own and start my own thing. And then when people start thinking that, they also start thinking about agency in their in their civic life and their community. And, um, you know, I live in, I'm currently in Dallas. Um, it's just a better city than most cities, but to varying degrees, all of these cities are, are ideologically captured by the democratic party and conservative people don't really have a realistic path towards exercising real civic leadership in the city. And so then when you, when you cast your eyes to a small town, you start to envision a life where, um, you and your friends are running great, successful, innovative businesses. Uh, it's a small town and the people there share your values so you can get involved in civic and cultural life. Um, people across the country are starting to feel that that uh, itch. And, you know, what Ridge Runner did, that started a couple years back. Um, and it, it was just sort of a recognition of the fact that that demand was there. And so we were going to try to intentionally reach that kind of person, you know, and bring them out. I'm I'm a native of Appalachia. Um, I I own land there myself. I I I I will be moving there, um, and uh, you know, so I know the area really really well. And it's it's already kind of gentrifying. People want what it has. It has um, an authentic connection to the old American uh, way of life. You know, folkways like people still talk. Uh, in a way that's similar to the way they talked 150 years ago or 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. They know how to farm. You know, a lot of these things have, have remained the same for a long time. And so um, it's very powerful and evocative. And a lot of people who have spent their lives chasing jobs and living in cities that are all kind of globally homogenized really feel the draw when they get to experience it. So 
Yeah, no, I, I find it such a, just such a fascinating idea. Um, you know, I, I come from a Jewish background and, you know, those of us who are observant, um, we spend Shabbat basically the weekend basically completely offline. And it kind of, you know, it automatically kind of drives you into this sense of community. And of course, um, you know, Jews who are religious need to live within, you know, proximity to a religious institution that they can walk to because we can't drive on the weekends. And, you know, you don't really understand how nice it is until you've experienced something like that. And, you know, this, this sense that like just everyone around you is part of this like community, part of this extended family. And it makes life just so much more grounded than, you know, just a lot of people who are living these crazy lives in urban centers and, you know, 70 story buildings. And it's just so dehumanizing, um, you know, this idea that, you know, the kind of meme that you're seeing on social media, that more people need to touch grass. I think that really relates to um, what's going on in the West today. But yeah, I think like it's, it's very interesting what you guys are doing at New Founding. Um, and it's very encouraging because you're right. Like, you know, you everyone has friends and family in these um, major corporations. And although, you know, you never know it through the corporate media's reporting lens and how they you know, viciously attack you guys, um, it's so, you know, the corporate culture is so far to the left today that we have, um, major organizations providing funding for transgender surgeries, but God forbid you, you know, express your support for, um, or you like, you know, if, if you're found at the, the March for Life or something like that, you know, it's cause for basically being blacklisted from every major organization. So, um, you know, we have like the centralization on Wall Street. So, it, and it seems that at least in today's environment, one of the few ways to overcome that is to have responsible venture capitalists who are willing to put their money where their mouth is and take risks. Of course, you know, there's there's it, it's definitely an, an uphill battle. Um, you know, as you've seen, like you guys, there is like these crazy articles in The Guardian and even The Daily Mail. And it's funny, these are both British papers. And I, I got a kick out of how they reported on um, you, you, the, the uh, Highland Rim uh, Ridge Runner project that they are basically smearing you because like it's such a foreign concept to the Europeans that people would want to own a lot of land and do what they want with it. Um, it yeah. It's just also fascinating to me. But, you know, I, I looked on the, the Ridge Runner website and it's very cool. Like you, I think the plots of land that you acquired are gorgeous. And, you know, I, I definitely wish you guys the best. But have you found that when you're trying to have you have you reached out to I guess the normies and, and tried to bring them on board? Like, what's that experience like with um, with people with like uh, other venture capitalists who haven't like? How do you kind of recruit them into the new founding type of network? Because like the incentive structure still remains true to you know the ESG. Um, DEI, you know, woke craziness. So I, I I won't mention names, but there are there are people in big in some big firms who understand that the ideological capture is you know bad for business and bad for the country. And so we do on the venture side, we do um, we do have a number of people that names that folks would know who are supportive. Um, 
and they see the opportunity. And, you know, that that's, I mean, a, a, there's there's still a lot of good capitalists in this country who, who like to make money. And a lot of them um, have gone along with ESG and DEI because it's those are external conditions that are imposed upon them and they just want to keep their businesses running, um, keep the capital flowing. And so they're not going to fight, but they they're skeptical. And, you know, they I think a lot of them, a lot of I mean, some at least understand like that there's actually an economic opportunity that's created by the sort of irrationality of um, the Fortune 500 and the major capital allocators. So we see that. I mean, we want more of it. We work at that every day. That's that's essential um, because we need, you know, the the in the financial industry, if you really want to change it, you need scale. Um, you know, you, you, we've got, uh, you know, essentially three viable large asset managers, Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street. And, you know, they manage um, almost all uh, state public funding. Uh, and and part of the reason that they're, they're hard to compete with, they're so big, they get um, just ridiculous economy of scale. So, um, you know, these uh, startup alternative asset managers, uh, you know, they, they have far less under management, so their fees need to be higher. Uh, just to be able to pay their bills and their salaries, and so when states go out to um, you know bid on who's going to be the the asset manager for our state, even if they have reservations about the way that BlackRock handles their money, um, it's it's pretty hard to tell you know voters or like like teachers you know people who depend upon the performance of the portfolio. Yeah, sorry, we went with this other product that costs you know 0.2 percent more uh, just because it's more ideologically aligned with our state. Um, th like that, that issue needs to be solved. It needs to be done, but it has to happen at a really big scale, um, mm -hmm. especially in the, in the public equities. Now, now, fortunately, what we're doing is more amenable to small, disruptive, nimble startups. I mean, we're, we're a venture firm out of our venture fund. The average check that we cut is, you know, 250 K or 500 K. So very modest investments. And, you know, we can, um, you know, we can do a lot, I think, to to change corporate culture and create great companies without having to have that massive scale. Um, but we're also, you know, we as we aspire to grow and getting to the next level is getting to the point where, um, you know, where you have some big partnerships and some big players that can instill the confidence necessary to uh, get access to the really big institutional capital. So, you know, this is all it's a it's a problem that a lot of good people are working on from different angles. Um, and I, I, I am confident it will be solved. All of that, you know, forming these credible alternative investment firms, um, some of them will succeed and make a lot of money. Um, and but also doing that moderates the behavior of the big players, too. So, um, you know, it's it's hopefully long term, it will be it will be helpful for the kind of uh, corporate insanity that we have right now. Mm -hmm. So for the for the the land project, is, is this kind of what you're rolling out? You want to see if this is going to be a proof of concept? Because I'm not familiar with any other projects that are actually. I mean, you mentioned that you're not super far along, but you own the land, right? So it's like that's beyond what the vast majority of people who have you know, created these, um, these, these mission kind of driven um, organizations 
Um, so it seems like you're actively working on the project. What, what, how do you kind of envision, um, not necessarily the, the community in Appalachia, but what do you have kind of like a rubric for what you think will work and what can attract, you know, 2000 or a thousand families say to, you know, move into, um, you know, all these really nice plots of land. You know, it, it's amazing when I, when I was on the, you forget sometimes that America is such a vast country. Mm -hmm. And although, you know, BlackRock and Bill Gates own so much of our land, um, the idea that we have like a, a population issue is just, it, it's madness to me. And I think that, you know, it, it's part of like the value structure of the, uh, you know, the people opposing the regime is actually like, you know, there, there's so much land out here and like, we don't need to be boxed into, you know, these, all of these just like coastal or, you know, urban centers in Texas, if we're right wingers, you know, like we can really yeah. create, there's really nothing stopping us today. I think you mentioned it briefly on the new founding site, like, hey, you know, we have access to, you know, partially thanks to Elon Musk, you know, we have access to really fast broadband and you know these communities like the the knowledge is there people know how to build stuff from the ground up in a relatively short period of time so you know what's stopping communities of people from coming together and you know do you see this kind of like as a proof of concept moving forward yes yes so so yeah absolutely and it's a very this one is a very high conviction proof of concept so we've got we've got some kentucky property already it's on the ridge runner website uh, RidgerunnerUSA.com. What I announced with New Founding is an is a substantial um, expansion of that project, and that's based on on that's in that's in response to demand that we've seen. Um, and uh, I, I will say what we're doing right now is we're studying everything about the demand. We know it's there, but we're getting granular about like um, who are these people, where are they coming from. Um, you know, what do they want, you know, and, and how can we help create that? You do have to, it's a collective action problem, which means, you know, like nobody, most people who live in the city, they don't want to be the first person to move out into the middle of nowhere. You have no friends and it's all on you to build a good life for yourself and then try to get other people to join you. Um, but if you've got organizations that know how to Kind of solve that collective action problem by getting critical mass together, by uh, helping to recruit, um, you know, uh, like churches, uh, schools, um, businesses that are attractive and appealing, like you know, grass-fed beef farms, that kind of thing. If you can get, um, you need to bring all of that together, uh, really, to solve the collective action problem. So that when somebody, when somebody um, thinks about it they're not they're not just daunted by this is a this is a blank slate in a vast wilderness and i'm just one person but rather this is happening and it's going to be awesome and i want to jump in to help shape the direction that it takes so you know it's um you know we we were slandered in the guardian and all of that right i mean you saw that they, they um they really don't like the project uh, they don't understand it at all um you know, but but um, you know what what we're doing is I, I mean I think providing a bridge to a life that people really want to live in cities, especially people with kids, um, people who tend to be more religiously conservative. This is mainly Christians; they really want this. Um, and you know, and uh, look, I will say on the flip side, as a native of Appalachia and in any other region we go into, 
there's a there's a protective aspect to this. There's an aspect of of defending and standing up for people in these regions um, because we're not going to let you know we're not going to let Appalachia get terraformed by liberals. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the way of life there is precious. It's an old American way of life. They're good people, and we're, they're not. You know, they're not going to get displaced, and their their downtown isn't going to get taken over with rainbow flags. What we want to do is guide the process of of bringing people there that will help them, like gr- like their community and that area, like grow into the rest of the century in a really healthy way, that's good for everyone. And, you know, and so that's, you know, that's like the, the, the frustrating thing about folks like the guardian is it's like it, it, the, the malice that is, is sort of required to, you know, search the internet for some tiny little project and decide that you've got to make it international news. I mean, we're talking, you know, we've like deployed a couple million dollars to date, you know, like this is, this is nothing. I mean, but um, it's a powerful, it's a new idea that they haven't encou- haven't encountered before. And it, it does it it creates worry and fear, I guess, in their readers, and they want to read about it, um, you know, because I think it's it's just a potent idea, um, which makes me really happy. I feel like we're over target, and you know, on the flip side, I mean, we've got hundreds and hundreds of people reaching out. The median person is like a white collar worker in Silicon Valley, has a good income, wants to buy a million dollar house, conservative, religious, you know, that's that's uh, really affirming for me and what we're doing. And uh, yeah, I, I, the only thing I'd say is like all these negative hit pieces were just too early. Like they should have come out a year from now. We'll give them a much better story one year from now than we have for them today. Yeah, no, I, I think that you know, I generally subscribe to the idea that all press is good press, especially for developing organizations. So, uh, you know, there's plenty of conservatives who read the daily mail and the guardian probably in uh in ghost mode but they still read it and then they're going to click on your website and say like hey wow this is kind of amazing i, I remember you know I, I spent a lot of time in the dc area and i would always love getting away you know driving down to like southwest virginia and just going to these small towns you know looking at the main streets just um it's such a relief the way that people live their lives out there and it's becoming less and less important to be surrounded by 8 million people at all times. It's not really mm-hmm. necessary at all today. And kind of like speaking, pivoting to the tech front. So the, the concern that I see in like these parallel projects, specifically in tech, is that for whatever reason, us you know, conservatives, libertarians, freedom prioritizing people, it seems that we don't have the roster of individuals who are technically sound, good at aesthetics. And a lot of our projects that are designed as parallel economy projects are like knockoffs of Twitter slash X, knockoffs of Amazon, knockoffs of Amazon Web Services. And there's, it seems to be that there's not enough genuine innovation. I mean, creating bootlegs is a very temporary solution to me. And that's what I'm seeing inundating the right today. So have, have you thought about that issue at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, it's something we've thought about from day one, uh, being together as a group. Uh, you know, it's th- there's a big grifter problem. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of um, 
a lot of people who are effective salesmen who go essentially, rather than going to investors to raise money for their company, they go to political donors and raise money, for, raise investments for their company that way on kind of, um, you know, based on sort of political uh, conviction only. And that's that's a big reason why there's a lot of bad companies that, that pop up and they do get a lot of media coverage um, and their flashes in the pan. Uh, but there are a lot of really credible people and that are that see what we're seeing and want to fix it and one of the big things is you're not going to find them you're not going to find them at trump rallies um you're not going to find them posting under their own name on twitter their suits usually because most of that like a lot of them are working in big companies uh so you've got to find a way to put out a bat signal to based people in big corporations where they can like confidentially start getting connected and everything. And so we've, we've done a lot of that. We have this, uh, one of the things we do is a talent network, um, which, you know, it, it, you know, it sounds like a small, modest thing it's blown up and, you know, we're like putting resources into it and doing a lot of placements, but it's, uh, it's all these people who are in fortune 500s, extremely credible professionals who, they're just they're ready to take pay cuts, take big professional risks and really change change their life around just because they've lost confidence in the organizations that they're in. They don't find those conditions tolerable anymore. And what that means is there's that again, it, it just plays into the fact that there's actually opportunity here because. Like if you're if you're a credible founder and you need to get a C-suite and your business is a credible business you can have your pick of really, really good talent, people who would not take a look at you otherwise. So this is an opportunity. It's got to be stewarded. You know, we only try to do business with people that um, are competent and know how to execute. Um, and fortunately, we're finding more and more of those people and, and more of them are in this space, um, you know, with under their own names. I, I don't know if you know, um, you know, there's there's people like Josh Steinman. I don't know if you've talked to him much, but he's, you know, he does a fair bit of venture. He's got a startup himself. Very competent guy in this space that we see on deals and such. Um, there's and and there's 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 these networks forming um, that are going to, I think, create a next generation of very good uh, companies. That, that are going to meet that you know maybe you call it parallel economy 2.0 but but I don't even want to say that because they're not these aren't companies that just want to be parallel economy they want to be category disruptors and become the best in the world at what they do um, but you know in a lot of cases they will have early adopters who are conservatives um, but that just helps them get from from zero to one and then you know their ambition is is to become you know great. Yeah, no, I appreciate the way you framed that because I think that the problem begins at the beginning when they, when you know these um, these founders create something that's specifically designed as an alternative to this, and that's basically you know you can't get beyond if you have if you're trying to build an alternative to Twitter, you're never going to get beyond what Twitter is today. So I think you're you're right. We need people more. In, even more ambitious and more, you know, original, who can access a different pool than just investors. And I think this is this is a huge problem, um, you know, on the right that 
people, uh, you know, there's there's a strategy to um, getting a huge ROI in, in in a short term, and that's what they seem these people seem to prioritize the, the bootleggers. <laughs> Uh, it's really unfortunate because like, you know, people, you know, most people ha have never been in the, in like the investment space and, you know, they're just trying to, you know, genuinely support movements that oppose, you know, what's going on in corporate America. But, you know, it, it's, it's crazy to see. And, and I, that's encouraging to me because like, you know, you look at a company like Boeing, they're so they're neck deep in DEI ESG that now you know doors are blowing off of their planes. It's just it, it's crazy to me that you know someone needs to stop this thing before it causes even more carnage. And I think you know it's only a matter of time. I was I was talking. I had another guest on yesterday. We were talking about Apple and how Apple's kind of one of those companies. Like eat, every company needs to at least somewhat embrace it. You know they're all creating DEI departments, but it's at what level do they decide to destroy themselves? And of course, you know, this, this leads to a problem of a lack of innovation. Have you seen like, it, it's interesting, like, you know, I'm 34 and, and grew up in, in the 90s and you know, early 2000s where you had like all of these technological revolutions happening in the pre-DEI ESG era. And I felt like the pace of technological progress was so rapid. And now today we have stuff like chat GBT and, you know, so-called AI, but it just seems that like there's definitely you know it's it's not happening at the pace it used to. Do you do you attribute that to like the craziness that's happening in corporate America today, like the bureaucratization and all that? Yeah. Um, two, well, two things. Um, I do think that tech took a inward, uninspiring turn. Um, you know, innovation has happened on on the smartphone, um, and chat gpt i mean that that is amazing technology there's a there's an innovation to that that's a that's the result of a lot of hard work and hard thinking um but it's all turned into this um you know just uh computer making computers faster smaller uh, more capable um and uh you know i think that's sort of running out so that that's sort of a secular trend right um that's not necessarily a political thing but then yes i do think the ideological capture of these companies has has just kneecapped their competence and you know the the this is another thing i want to touch on but the competence crisis you'll hear about this is sort of separate from the dei issues but but it's related um but the, the generation coming up uh is just is less competent in a lot of ways and a lot of big companies are being held together and, and being held back from disaster because there's that old cranky boomer on the team who like, I will not sign off on this until you get it right. I will not sign off on this project, you know? Um, and like the, when those guys retire, a lot of the younger generation is just not there. And you could talk about the reasons for why, but, and some of it goes back to education, I think, because, and DEI, because uh, educational standards um, have been uh, weakened and like sort of attacked uh, again because of because of DEI and wokeness. Um, the the bar has essentially just been lowered for everyone. Uh, we we're not a culture that like really seriously values excellence anymore. It's like the primary virtue in the way that we train people, and mm -hmm. that just shows. I mean, even you know just across the spectrum, everybody's less like Harvard grads are less competent than they used to be. 
20 years ago or 50 years ago. Um, so that's a, that's a big problem too. Um, but then of course, but, but that's a problem that's intrinsically related to wokeness, I think. Mm. Yeah, so, so this morning I was, um, you know, I'm a big Bitcoiner. So I think it's interesting oh. that, um, you know, these big institutions like BlackRock have finally embraced uh, Bitcoin as a means to at least attract investment from their perspective. Um, and I'm sure, you know, as a VC and someone that's, you know, been in the space for a while, um, you're, you're keenly aware of the, pro like you were talking about earlier, the problem having access to cap to woke capital specifically, and that kind of connects to monetary policy. Um, are you encouraged by movements, you know, connected to Bitcoin and other forms of kind of financial independence revolting against CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, and all these states where all these state governors seem to be taking this issue pretty seriously. This idea of, of monetary independence, um, are you, um, are, does that give you some hope? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and well, hope and also like, you know, um, I don't say this is a bad thing, but you know the the ability to control currency and having a like a political entity having a polity are inextricably linked so you know like the the roman empire like what was that but to a large degree it was it was roads protection currency you know and and when the when the empire starts to have issues currency degradation is one of the first ones to to rear its head and you know and and people start you know, rethinking their relationship with the empire when they don't get the goods that you're supposed to get uh, by being in the empire. So like, it's a really meaningful thing. That's why the government hates it so much because like the dollar, and we had like such a great deal for the longest time with the dollar because we could, and it's related to our, the fact that we control the globe essentially militarily, but we could um, print a ton of money, run big deficits, and export the inflation. So the inflationary effects are felt across the world, but the money that we print is spent in the States. So there's an asymmetry there. You know, we didn't, we could, the dollar could defy gravity. Like Greece can't print its way out of a debt problem because mm -hmm. nobody uses their currency except for Greece. You know, everybody had to use our currency for major global transactions and everything. And this is why, you know, even the most recent events, the, the I mean, very foreseeable that the sanctions on Russia uh, were followed by steep inflation in the states um, because the sanctions on Russia further the formation of the BRICS payment system, which means all these billion-dollar transactions are happening in some currency that's not the dollar, and there's less demand for the dollar now. Okay, so so that's the whole background. So so I guess I would say I am excited. I mean, I think it's like the like the excessive inflation is is unjust for people. Like it's it's actually just wrong. Like. It, you know, if you own assets, it can be really good. Like, you know, um, people who owned land and stocks, like, you know, they probably had a, they they've probably had a great three or four year run, but it's really bad for most of the country. And, you know, so, so Bitcoin is, I mean, it's, it's amazing the potential it has from that perspective. Um, but I get why it threatens the government a lot and it's going to be an existential fight. I mean, it's, it's, it, if Bitcoin wins, you know, the government that we have is a significantly smaller and weaker one than what we have right now. And 
Um, one other point I just want to say on crypto, though, again, with like the most exciting thing about crypto to me is sort of the web 3.0 applications that crypto can have. And, um, you know, that one uh, currently, I mean, gratefully, there's a lot of fighting going on. I hope under a Trump administration, uh, there's significant regulatory improvement. But the SEC has completely bungled and completely killed innovation in crypto because they've been so opaque about the regulatory status. Nobody knows you want to go launch a new coin. Does that mean you have to file for an IPO? Nobody really knows today. And it's 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 just absurd. It's it's crushing innovation. Uh, so, you know, that, you know, for any Republican administration, it's got to be a top priority that we allow innovation in the crypto space without the SEC breathing down everybody's neck. It, yeah, it's interesting when you look into the background of these federal agencies and you know, they, the, the name on them, you know, they, they claim to be protecting consumers or, you know, whether it's the SEC uh, protecting consumers or with, when it's these pharmaceutical regulation organizations, um, you know, this, this idea that they're, they're captured by these very powerful corporate um, lobbyists and institutions is, is a very real thing. Like you look at the history of, uh, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried was meeting with you know, the, <laughs> all these top commissioners right before he got thrown into the slammer and, you know, that they're so corrupted and don't even get me started on, you know, the pharma stuff, but, you know, um, I, it's interesting that you brought up, um, I, you know, the, the early, you know, Greeks and Romans. And I, I think that, you know, one of the interesting thing was, things was if you look at, um, Caesar and the coinage that was issued when he was emperor, um, he, it, it kind of like speaks to the, you know, the dissolution of a society because like, as he got older and fatter, they kept clipping the coins. So like you can you can look at like a, C a Caesar a gold coin from um, the beginning of his reign to the end. And at the end, like it's worthless and he's fat. And at the beginning, he's like healthy and it's not, you know, diluted at all. So um, but I, I saw that you were on um, I, I watched a couple of podcasts before coming on the show and I didn't realize that you have a. Uh, you have an advanced education in Byzantine history. So if you'd like, um, we could leave this last uh, question. Do you have any interesting um, parallels or fun facts about um, your studies that you think relates to um, America today? Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, you know, um, I, I think that I would say you know, for, for, for Americans who feel um, maybe down about the direction of our country, um, you know, I would just say that, uh, you know, the, the Byzantines, they were the Eastern, they didn't call themselves the Byzantines, they called themselves Romans. And, you know, Rome fell, it was sacked, all of this stuff, and they carried on a tradition for a thousand years. And, you know, of course they felt every, every single empire and polity has fallen throughout history, like newsflash, but they were an incredibly successful civilization and they transmitted like most of the classical world to us today. So we can thank them for that. And a lot of their buildings like still stand in Turkey, although Turkey's dictator is doing everything he can to destroy their stuff, which is horrible. But, but um, they were just a wildly successful civilization. So I guess I would say like, the um you know during a lot of time of uncertainty and you know and change and shift like I, I don't know what the future holds i mean also i guess apparently we may be in the middle of the civil war uh down here in texas um 
you know, things are getting reshuffled. And, and at a minimum, I think it's probably safe to say we expect America to stop being a global empire. And then, you know, what does that mean for us domestically? Like, we don't know yet, really, but that's coming. It's probably happening. And, you know, like I would just say in the midst of all of that, we still need like ambitious people um, building, going out and doing things. You don't want to get mired in nostalgia, uh, which is going to set you up for failure. You've got to have your eyes on the future and continue to build even, but with clear eyes, like understanding, like we're not, you know, like it's not just, America's not just going to be like it was in the nineties forever. Like that's not, that's not a future that's on offer, but you know, at a minimum, you gotta, you gotta do what you can in your control to, uh, you know, make the country a better place and carve out a space for yourself and and people that you love. And, you know, so that would be my, that would be my takeaway. Um, they had a great run and, uh, you know, and I think, uh, I think we can too. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting when you think of the American exceptionalism and our foundations were exceptional. Um, but to remain exceptional, it can't just be, you know, telling stories about our past. It needs to be an active effort, but, uh, Josh, really appreciate your time. Um, anywhere you want to send the audience in terms of your latest work and whatnot, or where to follow you. Best way to keep up with me is on Twitter at business. That's B Y Z N E S S. Nice. All right. Appreciate your time so much. All right. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks.